I'm Dee Reddy, and welcome to Scale by Intercom. As you've no doubt heard, Scale is now a dedicated space on the Inside Intercom blog, where you can find a wealth of materials, including podcasts, of course, that explore how businesses are driving growth through customer relationships. As part of this, we're now releasing a new Scale episode for you every second week, so you can continue to hear from a slate of brilliant leaders and thinkers about the strategies and frameworks that they've used to chart new paths for their customers and their companies. Our guest this week is Mark Roberge. No doubt most of you will have heard of Mark at some point in his impressive career, which has taken in venture capital, lecturing at Harvard Business School, even writing a best-selling book. And that's all after being one of the founding team at HubSpot. Mark's discussion with Intercom's Cato Hanlon delves into the inevitable question that every successful startup must face. When to scale and how fast to do it. He shares his insights to his data-driven approach and explains why there's more to it than just achieving product market fit and growing your sales team. It's a fascinating look at the science of scaling. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Mark and Kate. Mark, welcome to the show. We are so delighted to feature you as part of this new ongoing series of Scale. You've had such an impressive career to date with experience that takes in venture capital, lecturing at Harvard Business School, writing a best-selling book, and that's all after you left HubSpot, having been part of the founding team. So maybe to kick us off, could you give us a rundown of your career to date and add some color? Sure, Kate, I think you covered it. <laughs> but um, no, thank you for that introduction. Yeah, you know, I I started my career as an engineer. That's what I, I studied. I, I wrote, you know, I studied that undergrad. I wrote code for the first couple of years. And very early on, got the entrepreneur bug and then ended up at business school at MIT, you know, which is a very quant-oriented program. And then just by like serendipitous luck, ended up at HubSpot, you know, as part of the founding team. And also as luck, you know, was directed to run, be the salesperson and run sales. And I was uh, very fortunate that the timing of me finding myself in that seat had this like unbeknownst to me, there was a pretty significant shift happening in the, in the industry of sales. You know, we we were moving from these outside sales teams to inside. It, it sounds it's almost hard to imagine a world where we didn't have an inside sales team closing business today. But you know, a good whatever, you know, 15 years ago, that was a relatively new concept. And and what that meant was a tremendous amount of data available to us uh, in, in running our teams. And for you know, for a former engineer quant, that's just a really fun thing to geek out on, you know. And and that's uh, that's what I did. Not to later on write a book, not to later on teach at Harvard Business School, but honestly, just to survive. You know, when I get when I get nervous and I'm under pressure, I lean to the quant. And so that was just a, a, a remarkable, like life changing, blessed you know nine year run that led to the book that led to teaching at Harvard Business School, and then. Just another serendipitous piece of more recently starting a venture capital firm that we can talk more about later to help help with the ecosystem as well. You know, all in the, you know, within the frame of world-class go-to-market design. Thank you so much for that. That's a, a really, really interesting summary. So let's dig into the book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, using data, technology, and inbound selling to go from zero to 100 million. It's enjoyed huge success, but earlier this year, you decided to release an ebook, which builds upon the content that you had launched previously. Why did you feel it was due an update? 
Yeah, I, I probably wouldn't even look at it as like a revision of sales acceleration formula, but just really a different objective and a different book altogether. You know, the, the sales acceleration formula, to be honest, I, I didn't set out to write a book. I, I was having breakfast with a, a good friend of mine and extraordinarily successful multi-bestselling author, Jill Conrath in the world of sales. And she had proposed writing a book together, The Art and Science of Sales. Actually, she wrote it on a piece of paper when we were sitting at the inbound conference together. So that's how I kind of got into the idea of writing a book. And when we both wrote a sample chapter, she was just like, you got to write your own book. <laughs> you know. And I was like, okay. I mean, I respected her and she said she'd help me out. And, and that's what led me to write it. And, and a big part of the motivation was you know, I'm always looking for ways to impact the entrepreneur ecosystem at scale. And I was I, I was using my commute to and from work to do calls with with entrepreneurs that were looking to learn about how we built the HubSpot sales team. Mm -hmm. And they were literally the same question every morning and every evening on the ride. And it turned out that I'd get these letters after these emails after the fact saying how much, you know, the advice helped and, and these outcomes that were really, you know, impacting their businesses. So that, that was the main motivation is like, this is a pretty obvious book to write that I think could make a pretty big impact because I'm, I'm getting the same questions every time and I'm telling them what we did and they're making an impact on these businesses. So it's, you know, everything from like how to think about hiring salespeople, training salespeople, managing salespeople, and providing them with demand all within the, the foundation of a, a data-oriented perspective. That was the sales acceleration formula. But then since leaving HubSpot and, and joining the faculty at Harvard Business School, I was given a lot of flexibility to remain very active in, the, in practice. And I, I really enjoy the startup scene. Um, so I basically parachuted into a different startup every quarter and spent a day a week there. And after about six weeks, came back to the board and the management team with what I call go-to-market assessment. And, and that was essentially two or three go-to-market risks that they probably weren't as focused on as I would be, and some guidance on how best-in-class businesses have previously mitigated those risks. And, you know, looking back on that, you know, the, these entrepreneurs told me that the, the, that assessment made a big impact on their business and helped them avoid some possibly fatal potholes for their business. And so I started like kind of studying what the pattern was amongst those observations, specifically providing a more data-driven perspective on when a business is ready to scale and how fast. And it, those, those are two very critical questions that if you get them wrong, they can kill your business. And yet what I would ask entrepreneurs how they think about them, they were just pretty subjective and qualitative. And, and that's really what my more recent work that's currently in the form of an e-book called The Science of Scaling really sets out to answer is precisely when should we scale and precisely how fast. Right. Because from drawing on all that experience as a VC, you've seen companies falter at that point and struggle at that point. Yeah. I mean, this was even before deciding to do a venture capital firm. I was really just out there being called into various startups to help 
And that's where I started to do the work. And the venture capital business, my partner Jay, who was over, Jay Poe was over at Bessemer, and we started to do some work together on their portfolio with this framework. And he was like, we need to start a venture capital firm based on this. We need, we need to start the first venture capital firm that's run and backed by sales and marketing leaders mm-hmm. to help help entrepreneurs with the go-to-market design. So, so again, I didn't, I didn't really set out. I didn't wake up one day and try to go into venture capital. But this uh, Jay, I, I had formed a, a really great personal and professional relationship with him. And then he had this idea and... I realized that this could have a huge impact on the ecosystem. It could really change the success rate of startups as we know it. That's that's a big idea, and that was worth putting time behind. So now I've moved a lot of that. Pretty much, I moved all of that advisement work over to doing the same effort through the framework of a venture capital firm. Nice, and I, I'd love to chat a little bit more about that framework that you've developed for organizations who are at that point, organizations that are ready to scale. Can you talk us through those phases as you see them? Sure. So there's three, product market fit, go-to-market fit, and growth and moat. And so, you know, when I go out and I ask entrepreneurs, and I ask my students at HBI Harvard, I'm like, when, when do you think you're ready to scale? Pretty much all of them say the same thing, which is product market fit. And I think that's pretty good answer. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of came from the remarkable work of like Eric Reese in the Lean Startup and Steve Blank and his work on customer research. They, you know, this is roughly almost 20 years ago now, and it profoundly changed entrepreneurship for the better. Prior to that, we would sit in a room for a year and build a product without a customer. And that was not good. And thanks to Eric Reese, we we work with customers to build products. We test and iterate and we pivot and we develop minimal viable products. And we invented this word called product market fit. And it's our zero to one uh, execution is so much better because of it. However, once we... Like there's just too subjective approach to product market fit. When, when I do ask students, okay, well, or ask entrepreneurs, what is product market fit? I'll ask... I'll get 10 different answers from 10, 10 different entrepreneurs. And they're pretty, pretty subjective. Sometimes they'll be like revenue. <laughs> and maybe even they'll throw some quant behind it. Like when I hit a million in revenue, I have product market fit. Yeah, I couldn't disagree more to be up, to be blunt. I don't think sales has anything to do with product market fit. I think, I think that's message market fit. I mean, you, you told the buyer a story and they gave you some money, fine has nothing to do whether your product solves the problem or not, or whether they solve value. So I, I think that's not a good answer. Sometimes they'll say, you know, a workable product in a big market, and that's fine. But like, what exactly does that mean? Like, what's a workable product and what's a big market? And I know Sean Ellis has some good work on when you survey your customers and 40% say they can't live without it. And that's much better. I mean, now now you're getting more toward like the product value side and you're providing some quant around it. I'm just really concerned with, uh, you know, the typical false positive risk that a survey can yield. I mean, I don't know, Kate, if you've taken a survey on a product from an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm always really nice. <laughs> you know, 
Very kind. Very kind. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Everyone's trying their best, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So for me, like the, the if I were to choose a metric, I would choose customer attention. I think that says a lot. You know, if someone keeps buying your product or buys more of your product or renews your product, however it is, whether it's a sweatshirt or a software subscription or whatever, I think that says a lot. Um, now, the problem is customer attention. It takes a long time to figure out what it is. It can take a year. And let's just talk software for a second, because this is mostly where we, you know, where the world we're living in, uh-huh. uh, at least on this on this webinar. So it takes like a year for us to know what our customer attention is sometimes. So what we have to do is seek out a leading indicator to customer attention. And that to me is the basis of good product market fit definition. And, and so I've, I've even have like, I don't think there's a universal answer to like a leading indicator. Yeah. I don't think it's always like people set up your product or, people use it every day or anything like that. I think it, it's unique to the business, but I do see that most good lead indicator designs have the following format, which is P percent of customers do e-events within T time. Okay. So you isolate it down to three mm-hmm. variables, the P, the, the E and the T. And if, we, if you look at Slack, there's just pretty much if 75% of customers send 2000 team messages within 30 days. I think if that happens, they have product market fit. And if it doesn't, they probably don't. I like that definition, right? And like Dropbox, 85% of customers back up their files within one hour, right? For um, HubSpot, I know ours was um, 80% of customers use five or more features out of our 25 features within 60 days. Okay, so that's it. P P percent e-events, tea time. And I think that's a far better definition of when we have product market fit. I'll stop there, Kate, before we go to go to market fit. But does that, that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's super interesting. These are things that I talk to my customers about every day. How do we get our customers to do X action so that they're activated, they've adopted, um, and ultimately, as you said, we're impacting impacting retention. So that's really interesting. And it is that like no one size fits all approach. It's going to be different for everyone, but there is that framework or that guide that we can follow, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think that's a much better approach than a big, a workable product in a big market. And, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like the P percent is usually between 60 and 80. The T is usually like 30 to 60 days if it can. I mean, Dropbox can do it within an hour or two because it's so easy. And Workday selling to like huge companies, that might take six months. But for the most part, it's 30 to 60 days. The E is the hard thing to define. And it is usually something around like product setup or usage, or if you even have like a low time and effort to value, it could be like um, seeing some sort of value, like a, a lift in leads or, or you know, something, you know, deep, you know, Something that's measurable there. That's the tougher part. But at least it gives us a much more precise framework in which to define. Fantastic. So what happens next? They're on yeah, the right so, track. We've got product market fit. What happens next? What what's next in the framework? Yeah. So at this point, like product market fit, you know, again, all we're trying to do is we've proven that when we sign up a handful of customers, 10, 20, 30, a large percentage of them will see the value that we promised them. We're, we're, we're creating that value consistently. That has nothing to do with profitability and scalability. In fact, like I, 
I'd encourage you not to do scale. I'd encourage you to do unscalable things at that stage. My friend David Cancel, who ran product for us at HubSpot and now founded Drift, you know, in the early days of Drift, he literally got on an airplane to onboard customers that were paying him fifty dollars a month. <laughs> I mean, if you're doing that, that's good. You know, they're in the product yeah. market stage. It is so hard, Kate, as you know, like to invent a business idea one day mm-hmm. and to literally get eighty percent of your people you sell to realize the value. If you do that, you have achieved something that so few entrepreneurs have achieved. And you should just do every, you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink at them to make that happen. Now, when you have that, go-to-market fit is about doing that scalably. It's about doing that profitably before we're ready to add a bunch of sales reps. And in, in our world, Kate, of you know, SaaS and software, we usually talk about that in the form of unit economics. Okay, so we search for LTV to CAC ratios of three, greater than three. We search for payback periods less than 12 months, 12 months or less. And again, our unit economics are lagging indicators. You know, if we sign up a bunch of customers this quarter, we may not know until January or February what the unit economics on that effort is. That makes it tough. Um, that is tough. Right. Yeah. So, so we... So we again have to seek out the leading indicators, just like product market fit was the leading indicators to customer retention. Go to market fit is the leading indicators to unit economics. And this one's a little easier. It's, it's algebraic in the sense that all we're trying to do is knowing that we want to have an LTV to CAC ratio greater than three. We just have to basically calculate what that means for our sales activities today. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna have an LTV to CAC, greater than three, how many appointments a week do our SDRs need to set up? What does the conversion rate from appointment to customer need to be for our sales reps? What is the average sales price for the customers that we sell? These are some of the inputs that we'll know sooner. We'll know like kind of now that will yield the unit economics down the road. So that's where we can just simply set up like a dashboard and our CRM or whatever to figure out where that sort of line in the sand needs to be, and then operate to see if we're above it. Okay. And so with those two things in mind, our decisions around go-to-market design are very different, right? So when we're pursuing product market fit, I don't really care about your pricing model. I don't really care about any sort of compensation design for your reps. I don't even care that you have scalable demand gen. I would think like, you need like dozens of customers. You should be able to get that through referrals, like personal referrals or referrals through investors, referrals through your board. You should do unscalable thing. You do not need a codifiable sales process. If you're going to hire a salesperson, do not hire the scalable sales rep. They're not going to help you. You got to hire someone that's sort of like a mix between a product manager and account executive. You look for early adopters. This is the playbook for pursuing product market fit. When we get to the pursuit of go-to-market fit, that's different. Now the pricing model does matter. Now the commission plan does matter. Now having a sales playbook is required. Having one scalable demand gen channel is necessary, right? So, so those are the definitions and, and how it impacts our decisions, right? It's almost like you've earned the right then to mature. You've earned the right to grow up and almost start worrying about those things. Right. And it, it, it provides us as entrepreneurs with a clear North Star for organization, a sequential North Star. It's like, you know, if we're at the product market fit stage, let's not talk about the pricing model. You know what I mean? Just like get them paying something. I love it at that stage to tell a customer, 
listen, it sounds like what you need is what we've built. And thank you for elaborating on your needs. You know, we've got 10 customers today. We're just trying to get to 20 beta customers. We're selling this thing at $70,000 a year at scale, but we're giving our first 20 customers 90% a 90% discount. Would you be willing to, to jump on board? That's fine. It's not free. I just need enough to get them committed to set the thing up and use it. Right. So, so it just not only does it define our North Star from a metric perspective, but it instructs us on what decisions in the go to market design are critical at this point. And then what happens next? Is there anything else that we need to be? Um, now we're ready to go. Now we're ready to go. It's, it's now um, we're ready to go, kid. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> once we have product market fit and we have go to market fit, we're ready to scale. And, and listen, I'm not advocating going slower, I'm just advocating growing healthier. Right, like no one, no one comes up with a business idea and then hires 20 salespeople. You just don't do that. But what this does is allowed us. It can take like two or three months. You can get through each one of these phases. Sometimes, a lot of times, it takes longer, but at least it tells us where we're ready. And now we're ready to hire salespeople. Okay, now, so that's the answer to like when are you ready to scale? Now, the other piece is how fast. And this is a, another area that I see. It just kills businesses. It kills good businesses. Like pretty much 50 out of 50 entrepreneurs that I've met in the last year did this. <laughs> they built their product. It was going well. They had some initial customers. They, they felt like they had product market fit. And then they raised a big round of financing from a venture capital firm. And they hired like 20 salespeople in the next month. That's really bad. That makes me nervous. <laughs> I've never seen that work. I've seen it tried. I mean, maybe it has worked, but I haven't seen it. And it's like, if you're a 20, 30 person company and you're going to hire 20 reps in a month, I don't, how could you do that? Like, do you know how many interviews that is? Do you know, do you know how, who's going to manage them? Like, where's the demand gen going to come from to get the meetings necessary to hit their quota? It's, and everyone does it. That as a sales rep, as someone who every day, this is, this is my role, this is what I'm doing, that sort of more considered, not cautious is the wrong word, but more measured approach is it's attractive rather than knowing you're going somewhere that just has a ton of heads and not the same sort of input or you won't see the same sort of success as, as a rep if that's the strategy. The goal is to get them to be able to hire 20 reps a month. That would be fantastic. The dream. But they're just not ready at that point, you know? And, and so that's the, the, the final stage is growth and moat. And this is where we're starting to add salespeople. And it's the, it, we're, we're going after the question, well, now that we're ready to scale, now that we have product market and go-to-market fit, like how fast should we scale? And the answer to that is a pace, not a lump sum hire. It's not about hiring 20 reps in the beginning of the year and crossing your fingers that they work out because they're probably not going to. It's about hiring one rep a month for four or five months. And then what we've got is we've instrumented this leading indicator to customer attention. And we've instrumented this leading indicator to unit economics. And we just watch the instrument. I call it the speedometer. We watch the speedometer. And if the speedometer stays green, we go faster. If we hire one rep a month for five months and the speedometer stays green, you're doing it well. Go to two reps a month for five months and then four reps a month for five months and then eight reps a month. Now we're cooking. And you've shown that you know how to 
hire reps and onboard them and coach them to productivity. And you can form a management layer, right? And that's what happens in the growth and moat stage. So, so our work in the product market and the go-to-market phase of, of finding our lead indicator to customer attention, our lead indicator to unit economics becomes our speedometer as to how fast we can actually scale. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. And to think a little bit more about that phase where we're adding heads, we're building out teams. I think one of the things that really sticks out is the importance that you place on alignment between those teams. And I would love to drill into that a little bit more and kind of ask what are the different strengths that teams can offer one another at that point? So for example, what might a customer support team learn from sales and and vice versa? Yeah, it's a good question, Kate, this whole alignment piece. You know, that's one of the key questions just in the go-to-market design is it's in vogue these days to have specialists, you know, to have one person set the appointment, one person close the appointment, and one person onboard the customer, and even have another person potentially expand and renew them, right? That's like, we're, we're in kind of like a massive specialization preference these days, which, which wasn't always the case. And still in some, in some sales models isn't used. I mean, just look at like partners at McKinsey <laughs> or BCG. I mean, they pretty much do the whole thing. They set the appointment in a way, right? They're out there like, you know, networking with CEOs of public companies. They, they sell the deal and then they are a big part of the delivery. They lead the delivery. And that's the optimal design. You have to think about what's best for you and your organization. Having one person run the whole thing like at McKinsey or BCG, that's awesome for the customer. You know what I mean? They, they meet one person, they like that person, that person understands their business and they work with them for the lifespan of the relationship. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And also it eliminates any sort of alignment complexities as a manager. Like no one's going to set a bad appointment if they have to work it themselves. <laughs> and no one's going to sell a bad customer if they have to onboard and renew them themselves, right? 
But the reason why we've moved to like massive specialization is there's a lot of advantages to that. I mean, it allows us to hire the right person for the right job. You know, as you know, as a salesperson, like, you know, the best salespeople are very different than the best customer success people, you know, very different skill sets. And then furthermore, some aspects of the go-to-market sort of buyer journey take a higher skill set. Like selling a big complicated deal is a very challenging skill set. And it would be a shame to waste that skill set on setting appointments or on like onboarding customers where that person isn't as strong. Right. So that's where this stuff comes from. But to your point, Kate, it creates all these misalignments. So as we're setting up these alignments, we, you know, one thing that's actually quite helpful is instead of having a big BDR team setting appointments for a big account executive team, signing up customers for a big customer success team, you can organize your company around the customer in sort of cross-functional pods, right? So yeah. instead of having 50 BDRs setting appointments for 50 AEs, sign up customers for 50 CSMs, and it's complete round robin, instead having you know a team that works on uh you know maybe out in, you know in europe it would be done more like you know country like let's this this team's working on germany and you've got like four sdrs that set appointments for six account executives that sign up customers for two customer success managers and they sit together and you know when you set up that type of relationship they're not going to screw each other over they're not going to set up a bad appointment and they're not going to sign up a bad customer. And if they do, they're right there sitting with each other, talking it through. And then furthermore, you, you can have incentives in their job that are sort of upsides and downsides to good behavior later in the funnel. So what do I mean by that? Don't comp the BDRs on meeting set. Like that's going to end up with a bunch of bad meetings. Like have at least a portion of their compensation correlated to the revenue that comes from the meetings or the conversion rate of the meetings to customers. Right? I think that's, that's the better... age-old conundrum, isn't it? The meeting yeah. set. Yeah, it's, it's a really yeah. difficult one to balance. I mean, I did that at HubSpot and it didn't work. I mean, every time, for the first three months, right? It was like, if I, I comped them on meeting set and if the account executive they were setting meetings for hit their number, then the account executive would lie on behalf of the BDR and, and tell them they had more meetings set so they got more money because they liked what they did. And if the account executive missed their number, they would complain that all the meetings were crap and the BDR shouldn't get paid for them. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe you've been there, Kate. It's, um, it's a balancing act. Yeah. So I think you just, I just personally, I leaned in, I just comped them on the revenue. That's it. And I, I went a lot better, especially in those small pods. And then same thing with the account executives, like their job is not to onboard customers and to renew them, but what they say during the sales process is largely going to dictate how that goes. So I like to do half of their comp on the sale and half of their comp on the lead indicator of customer attention. Like look at Slack, right? Slack's lead indicator of customer attention was when the customer sends 2000 team messages. So guess what, Mrs. Salesperson or Mr. Salesperson? You get half your commission when you sign the con when they sign the contract and half when they send 2,000 team messages. It's just a 30-day delay, 10 days if you're good. You know what I mean? And I, I don't want you to get involved in the onboarding. That's not what I'm saying. I just want you to set good expectations on what it's going to take to 
like set the product up and get your people to use it. So we build about the right behaviors based on the, the comp planning question. Yeah. And don't just comp them on the handoff point. Don't just comp them on the meeting set or the, the customer sold. Have a portion that's correlated to the quality of it. That's teeing the next person up in line successfully, teeing them up successfully. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, especially what you say around around pods, because it's not only just customer focused and really putting the customer at the heart of of the pod, but it's also relationship focused. It's the relationship that the SDR has with the AE and almost everyone having each other's back that that nurtures that alignment and and takes away the the challenges of of a misalignment in the in the process. That's right, Kate. Like you're not you grab beers with these people. You go to the pub together. You know what I mean? Like you sit with them, you play ping pong, you like have a coffee break. Like it's not that they're going to not set up a bad appointment, but you're going to hear about it. <laughs> you know, you're going to learn about it as opposed to if you're setting up a, an appointment for a bunch of account executives that are on a different floor that you never meet, you know, or, or a bunch of CSMs on a different floor that you have no idea who it's going to. This is a person that you sit next to. And, and there's an, there's empathy there. Like, the CSM sees you struggling on the last day of the month trying to hit your quota. And maybe this customer has some risk on it. But the CSM's like, you know what, Kate? Let's go for it. Let's go for it. I know how hard you're working on this. You know what I mean? So there's there's some empathy there that that the team right on the front line can make these decisions. Yeah. No, that that's and it's something I've seen myself, you know, we're aligned really closely with our customer solutions team. And you're right, like that if if they know there's something challenging arising, they're ready to to jump in and, and support you if necessary. And that change for us has been so successful and has really helped foster those strong, supportive relationships between the the solutions and the sales work. So yeah, it's ringing true for me anyway in what I've seen. Um awesome. really quickly, just to kind of shift gears a little bit. I think for a lot of 2020, there's been an understandable shift in focus for SaaS brands. And this shift in focus has gone from a focus on growth to a focus on churn. And all of these economic circumstances have meant that many management teams are having to reassess measurements of success and pivot to suit new markets and all of our new work environments and still dealing with this unprecedented economic situation. So with all of that in mind, how can companies know when is the right time to almost shift that focus back? Yeah, I mean, it's really this framework, right? It, the kind of answer of like, when do we reestablish growth? I would say when you have product market and go-to-market fit and when they're measured within this, the depth of this framework. You know, that, that was kind of the irony of this whole, you know, pandemic relative to just the software execution. Of course, there's like so many societal negative impacts and tragedies and it's just tough for everyone. But I just think like from a software execution perspective, we were unhealthily obsessed with top line revenue growth and it was killing a lot of businesses and wasting a lot of money, wasting a lot of careers, you know, like valuable time and careers. And we've been, we've been kind of going at it from this standpoint since the beginning and our portfolio is very healthy because of it. So I think you just use the exact same framework and, you know, this, this shift back to unit economics. Again, I'm not, I'm not advocating slower growth. I'm just advocating healthier growth. And so, you know, when you have product market fit and go to market fit is when you should reestablish growth. And now is a time, even if you're like, you know, 50 million in revenue or more, 
like now's a great time to take a step back if some of these concepts have resonated with you and start measuring them because you know the entire funnel shape has changed the entire sort of optimal target market is maybe changed um, because some people are affected more than others so now's a great time to just set up this infrastructure and with everything that's happened this year what's next for stage two capital what's next what's coming up yeah, um, things have been going well. We made 11 investments in, in Fund 1 over 20 months. And we were told if three or four mark up, that would be pretty remarkable performance. And we're, we're excited to say that eight out of 11 have already marked up to their next round. Uh, wow. Three of those have happened since the pandemic. I think we have verbal on a ninth one. And not that the other two are not any good. It's just we just did those investments like two, three months ago. So we're pretty psyched about how the thesis has played out so far. And uh, we're raising our second fund now. We started that about two months ago. We've already raised, it's a $50 million fund. We've already raised a third of it in the last two months. So we're equally excited that that has gone with tremendous momentum despite COVID. We raise it obviously from like VPs of sales and CROs and CMOs and heads of customer success at most of the software unicorns. We have like 90 of them signed up as already on as investors. You know, the, the executive team at like uh, Atlassian and Zoom and Salesforce and Oracle and Twilio and former Dropbox folks, LinkedIn, Asana. You know, I mean, most of the software unicorns are, are behind us. So we're excited. We're about to make our first investment this week out of Fund 2. And, uh, you know, we just want to keep going out there and, and writing a lot of content on this and hopefully help a bunch of entrepreneurs. And if people want to keep up, I mean, that all sounds so exciting and great to see such, I think, positivity coming out of times that I don't want to keep saying these unprecedented times because I think every, everyone has used that, that term an awful lot. But um, it's great to see such positivity coming out of these, uh, these more difficult and challenging times. So before we let you, you go, I'd love to also talk a little bit more about something else that's incredibly positive, and that's the profits of your book. So I noticed that they all go to what seems like an incredible organization called build.org. Could you tell us a, a little bit more about the project before, um, before we, we let you go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Kate. Yeah, 100% of the proceeds for the book are donated to build.org. It's a remarkable organization. Unfortunately, I think they only have US presence, but they are in like a, a couple dozen cities. Uh, what they do is they choose the worst performing high schools, to be honest, in each city that where these kids just haven't been dealt the deck that we likely have been dealt. There's just not a lot of, you know, it's graduation rates are low. There's not a lot of matriculation into, into college. And they basically engage them in, in entrepreneurship of all things in their freshman year of high school. And they, they teach them how to start a business. And it's a four-year program that they, they kind of are part of with mentors and working on their business uh, through, through high school, all with the intent to get them through high school and into college. And the success of the program is unbelievable. My friend Yeli Shakira runs it. And I think like 99% of the kids that go through it graduate from high school and 85% end, in the co end up in college, which is like leaps and bounds ahead of what the averages for those high schools are. So if you do end up supporting the book, thank you. Uh, you're supporting a, a, a remarkable organization as well. Yeah. And, and thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that. I'm sure everyone can go and check it out now. Um, lastly, before we finish up, where can everyone go to keep up with you and your work? 
Yeah, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So I try to I try to get to as many messages as I can there. I apologize if there's a delay or if I get stuff, but like you can send me a message there and I post all my work there as well as other people's works that I find to be tactically helpful to the art the ecosystem from the perspective of go to market. So you can you can follow me there. Do you miss your commute for responding to those messages or are you thankful you don't have to do it right now? Nah, I, I drive, so it was oh. harder to do that. So I don't miss it at all. <laughs> I like to work virtually. It's very productive. Brilliant. Well, thank you so, so much for taking the time to connect with us. It's been brilliant to talk, Mark. Thanks, Kate. I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed Kate's conversation with Mark Roberge. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another episode of Inside Intercom featuring Kyung Kim of Blind. We hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.